Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. Andrew and I are delighted today to be able to welcome Jennifer Nuzzo. Welcome, Jennifer, and thank you so much for making time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Jennifer is Professor of Epidemiology and Director of the Pandemic Center at Brown University School of Public Health. This is a new enterprise that really is built around Jennifer's remarkable leadership in this area of health security. She's also a very active senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations, which is a great program led by Tom Boyke. Before we launch into today's discussion, which is going to really be about school closures and the hearing that the House Subcommittee on Coronavirus Pandemic held last week, I want to first turn to something that is quite unusual about some some of Jennifer's work, is which is that when Sasha Cohen was putting together the most recent Borat movie film, you got enlisted to advise. Explain what that was all about. Yeah, I mean, if you remember when Borat's subsequent movie film came out, it was um, right before the last presidential election. So that meant that they were filming really at the height of the pandemic um, at a time when, you know, not much was else was happening. And so um, I really credit the filmmakers with wanting to make sure they did so safely and to make sure there wasn't any undue illness or, you know, other harm that would come by way of the people who were involved in the film. So they, they sought out expertise to make sure they could do it as safely as possible. And I'm happy to say no one got sick um, in making that film, which was I think a real a Herculean effort because the the protocols for thinking about how to protect people um, in making films, uh, you know, weren't established prior to the pandemic. Well, that's fascinating. And then you later worked with him on a was it a documentary debunking Borat, which tried to grapple with some of the falsehoods and conspiracy thinking surrounding the pandemic. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So there's two um, characters in the film. They're, they weren't characters; they were real people who, you know, were sort of portrayed as sort of conspiracy theorists. They had beliefs that, you know, were maybe outside of the the average beliefs when it came to a whole range of issues. But um, certainly when it came with respect to COVID, they weren't necessarily rooted in what we'd consider the best evidence. And so I was filmed uh, having a conversation with them, a real dialogue actually about their beliefs and sort of how they were wrestling with COVID the virus and their thoughts about the vaccine and you know, whether there were microchips in the vaccine, just their thinking about the origins of COVID and, you know, whether it was a deliberate event. And obviously, Borat, the movie is a, is a comedy, but really the conversation that I had with these two gentlemen was really poignant for me. It was very eye-opening. Uh, you know, we had two people who were, you know, just trying to navigate life during uncertain terms. And there was this moment when 
They, you know, they're asking really thoughtful questions where I felt like we were having a really productive dialogue. It was, they weren't coming from a place of, of true disbelief. They were trying to answer questions, but they just sort of sighed and said, you know, we just don't know who to trust. And it was at that moment that you just realized that, you know, we can label people as conspiracy theorists. We can, you know, think that this is, you know, something other than an abandonment of, you know, reason or rational thinking. But the reality is, you know, people are trying to answer tough questions for themselves and their families, often doing so in, you know, seeking information in sources that are poisoned by lies. I mean, our information environment makes it incredibly hard for people to, to access truth. And that if they don't have relationships with, you know, in the case of, of these two gentlemen, you know, one of the things I had asked them is if they could talk to their healthcare provider, and neither of them had it. Uh, neither of them had healthcare providers. So, you know, you just see that people um, were without resources and just trying to make some of the decisions the best they could, but not necessarily equipped to make those decisions in, in the way that we would hope um, with the, the best evidence available to, you know, many of us. They just didn't have it. Jennifer, it- This is Andrew. As a communications professional, I think about this issue a lot. And I wonder what your thoughts are when it comes to why you think it is so difficult, even for the most educated among us, to get clear messages on COVID. I mean, one of the things that Steve and I have talked about on this podcast a lot is is that, you know, I pay a lot of attention to what's going on in global health. I do this podcast with Steve, you know, live in DC where there's loads of information about COVID and all surrounding issues. But I couldn't tell you right now whether I'm supposed to get another vaccination right now at this point. And that to me is kind of, and, and I have a very good health provider and who sends emails, but I just don't exactly know all the things that I think I should know. And that speaks to what you were dealing with with Borat, with somebody who doesn't have the resources. So, you know, we're in this highly educated country. We're in this country that communicates really, really well. But on this issue, we certainly have a hard time, don't we? I think we do. And I think that's been an important misstep of public health throughout this pandemic is being unclear with its messaging and being inadequate with its messaging in in part because there were just many questions that people had for which public health actually failed to provide the answers, including, you know, lots of questions about timing and spacing of boosters and all sorts of things like that. But I don't think it's, it's purely about the absence of the right information. In this case, it was about trusting the messengers and not just trust as it's either there or it's not, but trust as a byproduct of services not delivered. So in the case of these two men, they didn't have healthcare providers, you know, health care. And for many people, when you think of public health, you hear the health part and you think of the doctors and nurses that you may have seen at some point in your life. It wasn't in their lives, but it showed up in the form of an emergency, in the form of telling people that they couldn't do things and not in the form of resources, except for when we showed up with vaccines and said, you know, take this, we have your best interest in mind, don't worry, believe us. It's really hard to get people to take action like that when you haven't been in their day-to-day lives kind of demonstrating your worth and value and commitment to their best interests. Thank you. So let's turn to the school closures and the consequences of school closures. We had the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic held its second major hearing last week, March 28th. 
the subject, the consequences of school closures, intended and unintended. And that committee is chaired by Brad Wenstrup, a Republican from Ohio, and the ranking minority is a Democrat, Raul Ruiz from California. And to their credit, they are dealing with a very divisive subject, but attempting to to do it in a bipartisan fashion. And we had bipartisan participation. Things got pretty heated, as we'll say in a moment, but they are attempting to think about what happened, where did we land, and where do we go from here. And this is a historical moment. We're past the acute phase. Schools shut down for extended periods starting in early early 2020. wasn't really until vaccines and tests had been introduced that, and then the PPE and ventilation improved that schools really began to reopen. Almost all of our schools are back and open, so there is still some hybrid function. But this big reckoning, this retrospective reckoning has begun, and we're at an early phase of it. It's coming up kind of murky and inconclusive and still very divisive. We're asking ourselves, what were the health benefits of closing? Was the re- reopening handled properly or not? Did it go on too long, come too late? And what were the negative impacts? There's a lot about lost learning, mental health anxiety obesity. And of course, there's a long-term question about what is this generation going to show the impact on their economic performance, their professional performance, their maturity. We We won't be able to know that for some time. So let's start, Jennifer, by asking you, as you looked at the reporting coming out, the summation of what happened at this March 28th hearing, what did you hear? What did the hearing reveal to you? Yeah. First of all, I'm glad we're having hearings about it, in part because this was a really important strategic question. And it's one that's likely to come up again. I don't know that anybody remembers this, but when we had a pandemic in 2009, schools closed. Uh, They closed for a much shorter period of time. Actually, on average, they closed for about three days. But schools closed. That was a warning. You know, and, and one of the things I am sort of amazed by and not amazed in a good way, but really stunned by is that we made basically no progress between that time and 2020 in thinking about were there to be other disease emergencies? How should we close schools? And not if we should close schools and not just that, but what do we do to continue to serve the needs of children if we chose to do that again? And part of why schools reopened in 2009 so quickly was that we, you know, sort of quickly saw that the virus wasn't quite as serious as we initially feared it was, but also parents experienced the disruption, families experienced the disruption. And so we saw quickly that sort of the potential downsides of closing schools. And yet it's like everyone completely forgot that. And there weren't plans for thinking about if we did need to move schools online, how would we do that effectively? What kind of, how would we continue to provide the services that children need? Before 2009, I mean, there were conversations and policy making circles about how would we continue to feed children who are dependent on school meal programs and how we would continue to provide the social services upon which children are dependent that are administrated through schools. And just very little to know progress in thinking through those issues such that 2020 occurred and it was like no one had ever even, it hadn't even occurred to them before. So I'm, first of all, glad that we're having hearings because we need to sort through really, really tough issues. 
And I appreciate that this is trying to happen in a bipartisan fashion. But what I really worry about and what came across at some point in the hearing was that it seemed to be like a political football in terms of, you know, who's the one to blame? Who's the one that failed to take action? When I would say collectively, we are all to blame for it. So there are two opposing narratives that sort of emerge from that hearing. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, I think there was the narrative of, you know, who was responsible for keeping them closed and then who was responsible for for trying to reopen them. You know, I'm not sure either side really has a great track record to fall back on with respect to schools, but there was clearly an attempt to sort of seize the, you know, we were in the right category. Yeah, I mean, they the Democrats seem to emphasize that Trump created so much disorder and chaos that closing the schools was was an effort to try and create a safe sanctuary and that people were traumatized and fearful and excessively cautious about reopening because they lost their trust, as you say, as you point out. They lost their trust in the broader government and um, in what they were hearing and that, yes, the guidance was the guidance from CDC may have delayed things a bit. But that fear was re- fear and lack of trust were a huge thing and that Trump had magnified and played up all of that. The Republican narrative is an interesting one in the sense that it alleges that the teachers unions were very instrumental in, in not wanting to come back to work and delaying the reopening and that this is, this is a sort of elite, elite public health officials making decisions that they shouldn't have been empowered to make. Yeah, I mean, I think what it ultimately points to is a breakdown in in process because, you know, you can't wave away if teachers were afraid to come back. You can't. I mean, you know, it, teaching is not a profession that you can show up to with half of yourself. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I felt very strongly that schools should be reopened. And yet, you know, seeing my kids, teachers trying to interact with the children, recognizing that if they were there under duress it would not be education in a productive sense. Uh, You have to be able to bring your patience and your magic and give 120%. I mean, if anyone has ever tried to corral your own children, much less, you know, 20 to 30 of them at any given time, you can imagine that doing so under duress or with a sense of fear is completely counterproductive to that. So the challenge was always going to be to make people feel comfortable in that environment. Jennifer, what are some of the points of bipartisan consensus that you see emerging, if any? Yeah, I think we now better understand the potential harms that can come with school closures, educational, emotional, and then also from an equity perspective. I mean, the truth of the matter is, and this has been a hallmark of this entire pandemic, is that we have not all suffered the same harms. And in particular, low income and and students of color have suffered the worst. I didn't see any doubt about that coming out of the hearing. I saw remarks. There was complete consensus around that. I think we've also learned that online education, as we have attempted to do it, is inadequate. Would you say also that we've learned how, we've learned much better how to manage hybrid situations? And today, if a student's not, if a parent is not comfortable about a student being in a classroom, many districts are offering are offering both options. And I would expect, depends on exactly what the pandemic threat is, but in the future, I expect schools are going to be much more dexterous at offering a couple of different options rather than a complete shutdown. 
I think we need to build that capability, but I'm actually not convinced that we know how to do it. And part of why I'm also worried is that, first of all, I think when we talk about schools, it's easy to focus on the testing scores, right? Like how can you do and how well do you do in math and English or math and reading throughout the lifespan, but certainly in the earlier grades, the social and emotional component of school is the learning. The children being able to interact with each other and navigate relationships and and fights and all sorts of things like that, that is very much part of what education is. I've learned this thanks to having a mother-in-law who's a developmental psychologist, that those uh, interpersonal aspects of of schooling is as important as learning to read. So anyway, I, I just think that there's much more work we probably need to do in order to be able to have this hybrid approach provide the level of, of benefit that in-person schooling does. It doesn't mean we can't get there, but I think it is going to be a very steep hill that we absolutely have to climb because even if we don't have another pandemic, which I feel very much that is very likely that we will, there's all sorts of reasons why schooling could be interrupted, weather or various other things, as well as some children who will not benefit from being in, in school in pers- uh, environments in part because maybe they have medical conditions that make them more vulnerable to just routine pathogens and for which parents may very much prefer to have them uh, educated outside of that congregate setting. So we just need to do more to make sure that that is the highest quality educational experience possible. We owe it to them. Do you think, you know, seeing this hearing and and the other ideas that are circulating, that there will be a path forward and, and a perspective approach for the next pandemic? Well, I'm usually an optimist, but I fear that this issue has become so toxic in terms of politics and political football passing that I am not sure we're going to make progress. And one of the things I point to is that, you know, the the Democrats spend a lot of time talking about the amount of money that's been allocated to make school buildings safer. But if you track progress on the local level, it's not clear to me that that's resulted in many places, in the kind of improvements that we need to have happen, and so we, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of work that needs to do to go on, and I think the only path to getting that done is to kind of take down the heat, the political heat on these issues, and truly pursue a bipartisan approach where it's not about you know finger pointing, but more about constructive building and rebuilding. My sister is a career educator and superintendent and is retired now and chairs a local school board that's a very mixed community. It's semi-rural. And she was describing sort of the struggles with the uncertainty and the fear and the question of when to reopen and how difficult all of this was. And her emphasis was that the learning recovery went fairly quickly, but the mental health consequences and behavioral consequences have been profound and they're not out of the woods and they've they've had to make very significant increases in investment in services and monitoring and surveillance and engagement with the students and that this is probably a permanent thing that her hope is that the schools discovered this vulnerability and they're going they're, this is not just a transitional thing but that this is something that is going to be built into schools over the next generation as a facet, which I thought was quite interesting, and that the community was in favor of that. They were not, there's not people emerging to say hybrid's bad, forget hybrid. There's not em- people emerging coming forward and saying these investments are tax dollars going towards mental health, 
are wasted dollars and we should not be doing that. That seems to me to be something significant in our society. Yeah, I'm glad that we're having this conversation because when you look at the mental, the adolescent mental health trends, I think one thing that's getting lost in, in the debate now is that those trends started pre-pandemic, but they did not improve and they likely worsened during the pandemic. And there's debates over what exactly was it? Was it the closing? Was it the, you know, I'm not an expert on mental health issues, but the fact to me, what these data clearly show is the need for sustained investments in trying to address the mental health needs of children and adolescents. I mean, we're, there's headline after headline about children's you know, units of hospitals being um, strained by mental health demands for patients that they're, they're serving. So this is, a, this is a, a widespread and you know, this is likely to be a sustained need. And this is an investment that I think we, we need to make, given that this is where you know, children and adolescents um, get most of, of the services. The worry that I have, and I actually don't know what the funding source is for the investments that school districts are making, but my worry is that they're actually tied to some of the emergency funding and will those investments be sustained going forward. But I, I do not think we should consider this infrastructure sort of a one-time band-aid that we're using to apply to the pandemic's wounds. The reality is we saw worsening mental health in children and adolescents prior to the pandemic and the pandemic exacerbated it. You know, yesterday in the Washington Post, the lead editorial was this long description of the mobilization around mental health in schools, for, particularly for middle schoolers and high school students across the country, where you have uh, Governor Murphy from New Jersey, who's the head of the National Governors Association, saying this is the top priority. And you have uh, Governor Evers in Wisconsin in his State of the State address saying, this is my top priority. I was really astonished by that. And then I thought, well, we had the opioid crisis for a decade. And the opioid crisis drew a pretty strong bipartisan base of support as this hit communities with such force and loss. And maybe what we're doing is benefiting a little bit from, from that background. Andrew, what do you think? Well, you know, I worry, Jennifer, that we may take the next pandemic a bit too lightly when it comes to closing and reopening schools. And, you know, I get really concerned about that because we all, uh, all of us who have kids have seen the impacts and certainly, you know, want our kids in school for all the reasons that you just described. But I also worry that, you know, pandemics can be deadly and are deadly. And, you know, how are we going to balance all this going forward in a responsible way? Yeah. I mean, that's the real challenge. I mean, in many ways, thinking about schools as a little bit of a microcosm for the the need for a better, more comprehensive and holistic strategy about thinking, managing and mitigating all sorts of pandemic risks. It is our great fortune that this virus wasn't deadlier for children, but there are no guarantees that the next one won't be. And if the next one is, God forbid, I mean, you know, we will be dealing with other issues. You know, even if we kept the schools open, parents may not send their children. But what we don't currently have is an adequate infrastructure to quickly assess the risks to children, quickly assess the risks of in-school transmission and how potentially to mitigate it so schools can stay open. Um, and it's also about thinking about the broader consequences of what happens in a pandemic. It's not just the direct harms from the virus itself. 
but it's about the harms that result from the pandemic upending our lives. And so, you know, you mentioned the opioid crisis. That certainly accelerated under the pandemic, in part because of the added stresses on society, but in part because we interrupted services aimed at reducing substance use and to prevent overdoses. And so we need pandemic plans that are more comprehensive and that address all of society's needs and not just a very narrow focus on trying to limit the spread of one particular virus. Certainly we want to do that, but I, you know, we shouldn't care more if someone dies of COVID or dies of, of an overdose that could have been prevented. So we're all puzzling over what's needed now looking ahead. There's the immediate need of trying to make sure that schools recover in an optimal way and what's missing that might be added in. And then there's the question of what's the action plan going to look like or should it look like for better preparing for the schools for the future. What are your thoughts on those two things? What's needed today that's missing in terms of getting the best possible and fastest recovery of schools? Well, I mean, first of all, I think on educational recovery, we need to understand what the the plan is truly. I mean, I think there's been a lot of progress at local levels, but this is a national crisis. I mean, to have uh, students' advancements set back by decades and to have those advancements be set back disproportionately depending on who the student is. I mean, efforts to address the achievement gap, I think, have been greatly harmed um, by the pandemic. We need a national plan for educational recovery. School districts are doing a lot of important work uh, in trying to address this, and they absolutely have to be part of this. But they're also not necessarily equipped with the resources or even the strategies for thinking about how do you help students recover. They need more resources. We also need a plan for what are we going to do in the next crisis? What are the considerations for closing schools and crucially for reopening them? I mean, that was one of the situations that I don't think we we better, we understood enough in this pandemic was, okay, we may have to close schools. You know, we were clearly caught flat-footed at the start of this pandemic. We didn't have adequate testing. And so, you know, many communities just for lack of other options had to close in order to hit pause and to try to figure things out. But we never had a strategy for thinking about how we would reopen. And I think what many people are reacting to was that they saw all sorts of things open, but schools be the last to open. So we need a strategy for thinking about if there are circumstances in which we'd ever close schools again and what concrete steps we would take to make sure that we could reopen them and what would the triggers be for opening and closing. The other thing is that we need to better understand what happened with schools. And I'm glad that the hearings are happening. But one of the things is that when we're talking about schools, what we really mean is public schools. Private schools were largely open. Daycares were largely open. We're talking about public schools and we need to sort of, you know, understand what happened across the whole educational ecosystem to to harvest some lessons from how were they able to do it. You know, in my view, what happened was we sort of left these very hard decisions about how to get teachers back in, how to, you know, make sure parents were comfortable sending their children, how we would educate them online and then hybrid and then in person. We left these to individual school districts in a lot of places who were just not equipped with the technical expertise or the strategic sense or even necessarily the political clout to make those decisions happen in a way that it, that most people felt comfortable with. You know, one of the themes that comes out in the hearing is that as a country, we were remarkably different from our peer countries. 
And so that point was made over and over again. Why was it that we went in this extreme direction, whereas many European countries, Sweden cited often, but it was much more than Sweden. It was many other European countries that managed the situation differently. What is it about the United States that accounts for this, this dichotomy? I mean, I, I wish I could tell you. <laughs> I, I don't fully know. I mean, I do think our politics were a lot different than it was in those places. But I think that is why we are at a situation where this issue is such a hot button for a lot of people, because in many communities, people just didn't understand why the schools remained closed when bars were open, when every other thing. I mean, I, I will tell you, driving as a parent, even I had this moment where, you know, my daughter was in daycare operating functionally fine. Uh, my son was not able to go to school. He was at home and he was at home for one of his school districts was one of the last to reopen. So very, very long. And just driving through town, I mean, we could, as a family, go to restaurants. We could go to many, most public places. The one place my son couldn't go was school. And there was this one time where we were driving past a bar that was open around the Ravens game and seeing these crowds just packed in there, so packed that you could see the steam on the windows, just knowing that there was not a lot of social distancing or mask wearing in that environment and likely a lot of boisterous yelling. And at that moment, it was just, it was hard to, to not ask, what are we doing? Where are our priorities? So I, I don't know why the United States did what it did, but there was clearly a point at which it was hard to understand the reason for our approaches. You know, you were an early voice, very, very early voice in your editorial in early 2020 in the Times saying we should be extremely cautious in closing schools. Others, uh, Monica Gandhi out on the West Coast in the Bay Area, also very strong voice of, of concern about all of this. You weren't treated very nicely, as I recall, in that period, in voicing that opinion in what might be described as sort of the public health establishment. Yeah, I mean, I think where I came to the issue was maybe a different from other people, in part because I had been involved in a number of the meetings that were brokered by the U.S. government. You know, the White House and CDC held meetings in 2005 and 2006, thinking about what we should do um, in a flu pandemic and whether, you know, whether we should close schools was one of the topics. And um, being in those meetings, I think I got to witness some of the evidence base and, and the construction of the evidence base for school closures in a way that maybe other people didn't. And one of them was that it was clear to me that the evidence that we saw from COVID felt very different than the evidence that we we're thinking about with respect to influenza and the benefits of school closures in the context of pandemic influenza. And so in pandemic influenza, um, we know flu is very often spread by children. That's children are the ones that <laughs> contribute to a lot of community transmission. We also know that kids are usually one of the groups that is harmed most by influenza. And very early on, COVID just didn't fit that pattern in the same way that flu was. And we also saw from the evidence that school closures and actually all of the non-pharmaceutical interventions were at best going to be pause buttons. Now, it's not to say that pause buttons aren't valuable, but 
Um, I wasn't convinced that if we just did this for two weeks, the virus was going to go away. In my view, the virus was not going to go away. And so what was our long-term strategy for dealing with it? And worried that if we had closed schools, when would we ever then be able to reopen? Now, I'm glad to have been proven wrong in terms of in a year having multiple safe and effective vaccines. Never in my wildest dreams would in March of 2020 would I have bet on that. Um, but I am glad that I was proven wrong on that front. Um, so anyway, I, I think I just approached the evidence from a different perspective than than some people did that didn't necessarily understand what the kind of limitations of school closures were for, for reducing transmission and why I didn't think it applied to COVID. Jennifer, we always like to close with something, you know, asking our guests, you know, what gives you the most optimism going forward? And I wonder if you have any optimistic thoughts about what's next in terms of schools and pandemics. I am really optimistic. I mean, I think that this event touched all of us, and I think it has increased the constituency around pandemics, and we will benefit from that. I mean, this pandemics aren't just health issues. It's true. They touch all of public health, um, but they're also society-wide events, and I don't think we'll ever need another tabletop exercise again because the pandemic has demonstrated that for us. And so increasing the constituency around pandemics, you know, having businesses see we have a stake in this, having, you know, regular citizens say, you know, I, I want to say in, in, in what decisions we make about pandemic. I mean, I, I think the approaches will be strengthened by our democratic approaches. Obviously, there's a lot of anger and a lot of frustration. And I think we have no choice but just to work through that. But I do think that by having these kind of multidisciplinary, broad-based conversations, we will get to stronger plans than we had going into this. I just hope we remain focused on being constructive and not try to destroy each other in the process. I am stepping outside of my training as an epidemiologist, but I have to hope that this country has been tested in many ways um, in the past and that we will get through this just like we have previously. The hearing last week, like the one before it on March 8th, lots of anger and rage expressed. And you almost have the sense that, that has to, we have to go through this phase I mean, and hope that constructive, civil, bipartisan ideas still get adequate, full consideration and become the ultimate focus of what people are gathering about. But there is a lot of residual anger and rage out there. Yeah. We have to work through it and we have to allow people to, you know, express their frustrations and, and to express their values. I mean, so much of the pandemic and how we respond to it is, is largely involve values decisions. Um, we didn't have a great process for incorporating public feedback and having people be partners and thinking through whether these plans were going to work and whether they were aligned with their values. But we absolutely, fundamental lesson from the pandemic, have to build processes that allow for that to happen, because otherwise the plans are just going to fail. No public health intervention is going to be successful if people don't think it's in their best interests. No government on earth has the power to compel 300 million Americans to do things that they don't want to do. Um, so we need to give people opportunity to, to say, I think it's about creating, you know, constructive dialogues to allow that to happen. You know, I think the hearings uh, were not the full solution, but hopefully going forward, if we can try to keep it civil and keep it constructive, I think they can be useful for trying to figure out what is the best path forward for this country. Jennifer, thank you so much for making time with us 
today, and thanks so much for all you do in your remarkable leadership in this field. Thank you. The same to you for brokering these really tough and important conversations. I very much appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.